This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today, we're doing The Good Boss, and I'll kick us off. So, The Good Boss came out in 2021. It stars Javier Bardem as the boss of a Spanish company that manufactures scales. Yes, scales, the measuring tool often associated with Lady Justice, known in Latin as Justitia, who famously wears a blindfold as she tries to balance the scales. The company is up for an award, and the boss is determined to ensure that when representatives of the local government come out for their assessment, everything is as it should be. The thing is, the company is riddled with internal turmoil. One employee is distracted by a wayward son. A veteran manager has a marriage that's falling apart. There's even a recently fired employee camped out in front of the entrance to the factory. The employee and the manager pose a risk to business operations, while the fired employee is bad optics. The boss has to find a way to deal with all these problems. All the while, he is distracted by a young female intern he finds irresistible. The boss claims that his company is a family and that he shares in his employees' problems. But companies are not families. Companies must turn a profit, and the boss must find a way to align these people with the interests of the business. When he can't, he has to fire them. He may regret it, he may feel bad, but he has no choice. This means that the boss rarely solves problems by straightforwardly acting in the interests of his employees, Instead, he acts in his business interest while offering humanitarian justifications. Sometimes his business interests overlap with the interests of the employees, but when this happens, it's a positive externality rather than a structural feature. In the case of the veteran manager, the boss's efforts lead further and further away from the manager's own interests. He starts by taking the manager out to dinner and inducing the manager to divulge his marital problems. When the manager is reluctant to talk, the boss insists that they are not at work and that he is not asking in his capacity as the boss. In point of fact, the boss is only concerned about the marital problems because they are causing the manager to be distracted on the job and to make poor decisions that cost the company money. But by feigning to be interested for human reasons, the boss gets information that otherwise would have been withheld. The boss tries asking the manager's wife not to leave him, at least not until after the government representatives have performed their inspection. He tries locating her lover and demanding that he cut off the affair. He even tries taking the manager to a strip club to help him find someone new. None of these things work. The wife and the lover both think this is none of the boss's business, and the manager is clearly uninterested in the scheme to pair him with someone else. Initially, the boss admits this isn't his business, but the more these people refuse to go along with his demands, the more he begins to insist that he has the right to intervene because this situation is affecting the business. It's not his business, but it is. He's not wrong. The manager is performing very poorly because of the marital problems. At the same time, the boss's interventions are an enormous invasion of privacy. Ultimately, Running the company successfully requires that the boss invade the privacy of his employees. It also requires that he meddle in ways that are not necessarily to their benefit. When all else fails, the boss fires the manager, replacing him with the man who has been sleeping with his wife. When the manager protests this decision, the boss threatens to frame him as an abuser of female co-workers. This solves the problem, but it involves multiple invasions of privacy, and it culminates in the betrayal of a loyal manager who has worked at the company for two decades. The manager only admitted the marital problems because the boss claimed he would not look at the problems from the perspective of a boss. But the boss is a boss. His perspective is that of a boss. It cannot be otherwise, no matter how hard the boss tries to convince others or himself that this might be so. We are what we repeatedly do. Many people in this film are bought off, knowingly or unknowingly. The boss gives his security guard tickets to the opera one night, keeping him out of the picture while the boss sends some goons to beat up the disgruntled former employee. The security guard has been bought off, but he doesn't know that he's been bought off. He assumes it's a coincidence that the disgruntled workers' camp was attacked the one night he happened to be away. 
The boss ends up having to give the intern a plush job to buy her silence about their sexual encounter. The intern knows very well that she's being bought off, and she leverages it to get far more than most. However, when the boss tries to buy off the disgruntled worker, the boss finds that this guy won't budge. So he sends in the goons. One of the goons is the wayward son of one of his employees. In a desperate bid to defend himself, the disgruntled worker strikes the wayward son with a crowbar, killing him instantly. This isn't a problem for the boss. He wins the award and the employee whose son was killed helps him hang it in his home office. The employee doesn't look very pleased about it, but the boss is oblivious and the employee keeps his mouth shut. As the film ends, the boss tells the employee the award is a bit crooked and demands that the employee straighten it out. This film's a ton of fun. It illustrates very well that the boss deserves the award precisely because of the terrible things he does to get it. His misdeeds make the company run better. He has internalized the logic of capitalism, and he acts on it efficiently and instinctively. He is, from the point of capital, a good boss, completely deserving of the award he eventually wins. We are rightly repulsed by his behavior, but his behavior is nothing more than the behavior that is necessary to win the award. The boss inherited the company from his father. His entire life has prepared him to effortlessly align his behavior with business imperatives. He is a product of the system, and his behavior is clearly what the system encourages. Those who watch this movie and see mere corruption miss the point entirely. This is not just ordinary behavior. It is the kind of behavior that makes the system function as intended. To eliminate it, we would have to change everything. In Spanish, the film goes by the title El Buen Patron. The word patron comes from the Latin term patronus. That term in turn comes from pater, the word for father. But patronus is also the title used by freedmen when addressing their former masters. In Rome, a freed slave was not a full citizen. The freedmen depended upon their former masters to represent them in court. They could go to their patronus for advice, but they were expected to honor the patronus and show gratitude to him. Emperor Constantine added an array of legal penalties to punish those freedmen who got too uppity. This is broadly the boss's expectation. His employees can bring their problems to him as freedmen bring their problems to a patronus, but they had better allow him to solve those problems in whatever way he thinks best. And as far as the boss is concerned, what's best is always what's good business. The same logic plays out throughout our society in all sorts of ways. Perhaps we'll get into more of them in the discussion. For now, let's see what Helen has to say. Yeah, I think this film is very fun, quite a, um, a quiet in a way, um, sort of the kind of European film you might see from 20 years ago. And I thought it was great. Um, I thought it was interesting in terms of uh, what a boss is in terms of the notion of castration. So um, at the beginning of the film, so the film takes place over a week and the the week it, it both is sort of linear and circular. So over the course of the week, you have the series of events that happen, as Benjamin says, um, in this uh, aim to get this uh, regional business prize for good business practices. But also it's a week of dissent where um, his manhood, his bossly presence, his uncastrated nature is challenged um, by uh, forces that would castrate him and maybe would ideologically purport to be castrated themselves. but uh, And they replace certain people within the hierarchy of the business. But by the end of the week, despite these sort of, in a way, woke um, challenges to the uncastrated boss and in his like apparent castration, the system remains the same. So I think it's sort of like a kind of um, microcosm critique of woke capitalism <laughs> in a way, in a way that is basically saying that, you know, it's well and good having these... Um, these sort of challenges to, to capitalism, but they still operate in the same way. And at the end of the day, the same system remains. So yeah, I mean, this um, Javier Bardem is obviously a very masculine figure as a, as, a, as a person, as an actor. And he's very much set up at the beginning of the film. Obviously, the scales are, are a motif that, that work their way through the film, but the sort of idea that he's you know, um, in terms of quote unquote good business practice, he's a good man. Ha ha. You know, he is uh, even handed. He is both uh, 
you know, takes care of his uh, flock, but also has some affairs on the side, but it doesn't get out of hand until it gets out of hand. You know, he is um, in the film, he and his wife don't have children. So he sort of um, runs the uh, the business as if these are sort of his unruly teenagers that he has to sort of herd up to make sure the machine keeps running properly. And over the course of the week, there are sort of challenges to this traditional, maybe conservative, patriarchal um uncastrated. So, you know, the man is the man, he's virile, he has, he's a phallic figure and he sort of controls the whole thing. And over the week he becomes, he gets these sort of challenges where he becomes more and more and more sort of like a figure of ridicule, somebody losing control. Um, he gets blackmailed by an intern with whom he has an affair. You know, so the tables, he's sort of, you know, threatened with me tooing. He has a sort of slightly woke worker who, um, you know, for uh, identitarian reasons, won't go along with his sort of like traditional patriarchal kind of like white man role, quote unquote. Um, but yet by the end of the film, the same the same system remains. So I just wanted to talk about how um, this idea of uh, capitalism, woke capitalism, how it's just the same as sort of conservative capitalism and how it tries to sell us um, castration uh, but it is actually just mystified castration and it is just the same non-castration in terms of the market. So basically, as human subjects, we are all actually castrated. I mean, we all lack. We are all, um, in order to be speaking subjects, miss something. We we are cut across by the unconscious in order to be speaking subjects. But um, within the sort of market system and also um, in other systems of authority, not just the market system, but, the, you know, we, the, the market system is different in that it's a mystified system of authority and the woke capitalism just sort of turns up this mystification to 11. But the, um, the master you know, is ideologically um, deemed to be somebody who is in control and maybe lacking, less lacking than all of the other sort of subjects. Um, but really what connects us all is this actual castration. And um, as psychoanalysis kind of points out, if we're able to sort of bring forward this fact of lack, we foreground it, then this sort of makes the logic of capitalism more unsteady and less likely to hold. What woke capitalism does is it sort of um, purports to um, echo the kind of emancipatory um, logic of lack that is brought forward by things like psychoanalysis, um, but actually packages it lack as a contingent loss. So the um, the woman, for instance, is not lacking because she is a human subject and therefore like everybody else and therefore uh, common to the thing that combines everybody, but rather she is a hard done by um, person because she doesn't have the phallus, because she is, you know, has gone through, um, her sex has gone through contingent historical um, wrongs um, and therefore she is missing something, but she can get this back. Um, and in getting this back, not only um, is this sort of this perfect kind of like commodity logic of capitalism because it sort of sells things um, and claims also that emancipation is on the horizon and in emancipation is wholeness rather than lack itself. Um, but also it is a way for the market to suggest that there is a superiority in loss because the, um, the subject of loss has experienced something contingently more... Um, real about the universe. Therefore, they have something moral to tell us. They can tell us a thing or two about how to live and they have this sort of victimhood authority. But really, at this, what has actually happened is they're just as uncastrated as everybody else in terms of lack. But what the um, capitalist system does is that it um, shows us, it, it, it maintains itself through mystification. So what is particularly bad about it um, is not only the exploitation, the you know the, the extraction of surplus value and all this kind of stuff, but it is the fact that it purports to be not what it is. And um, in order to be not what it is, it often suggests to us that those who are uncastrated in terms of capitalism, so not uncastrated in terms of their existential um, subjectivity, but in terms of 
the power that they hold under the market system are in fact castrated and the power doesn't actually reside with them. So, you know, you have the Silicon Valley um, CEOs who come into the office wearing a hoodie. You know, we we might, you know, ideologically just associate men in suits with like, you know, white patriarchy equals capitalism. But unfortunately, it's not quite as, you know, simple as that. And um, often the explicit uncastrated nature allows us to channel our um, knowledge of the functions of of the capitalist system in order to sort of make change. And it becomes much more difficult when mystification occurs. And what we have um, under woke capitalism is this sort of um, sustaining of the same logic where there is sort of somebody who is um, has the power, who is uncastrated in terms of capitalism, not in terms of their subjectivity, but who gets to um, mystify that uh, fact with their apparent castration. But everybody is castrated. So it's not like they are specifically castrated, capital C. They have a contingent loss that... Um, an apparent contingent loss that is actually the existential lack that we all have. Um, And so they are able to cover over positions of authority with this loss. And I think the film very um, funnily kind of portrays how at the end of the day, same shit, different day. Interesting. All right, let's see what Nina has to say. Okay, yeah, enjoyed your readings, both of you, um, as ever. I, yeah, I, I perhaps have a slight, slight issue with <laughs> Spanish films. Um, there's something about the type of humour that's often exhibited in, in Spanish films, which is both kind of macabre and lighthearted. And I think it's quite an acquired taste in some ways. And um, it, they're often kind of, campy and and so on I, I i think you know xavier bardem is is excellent in this film i mean he's he's in like every spanish film i'm surprised penelope penelope cruz wasn't in this film somehow i'm surprised you know Amadova didn't have a hand in it uh, i think just like i i've made this uh, outrageous claim that all french films are based on the premise that a bourgeois family exists and then something turns up to disrupt them and this is the structure of all french films i think there's also a structure to spanish films which is not necessarily exhibited in this film, but I was trying to impose my my stereotyping onto it, which is pretty much every Spanish film, it really has a scene of, of torture and it usually involves some middle-class person torturing someone in a dungeon. Uh, and this, I think, is the unconscious of Spain. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so I, I think this is, you know, this is partly a film about, about being uh, middle-class. Uh, it's uh, it's a funny film. It's it's a bit too neat for my liking. I like films that are more rough and open-ended and... Uh, uh, ambivalent, ambiguous, but it's a very, it's a, it's a very well done, uh, as you say, cyclical, but to, sort of weekly film. It's, it's neatly done. It's, it's very well acted. Uh, all of the, all of the characters are very well done uh, and convincing. Um, I, I think it could have been made. I think maybe Helen made this point at any point in the last <laughs> twenty or thirty years. I mean, it's very. Uh, without time in a certain sense. Um, in that sense, it's kind of deliberately uh, naive because uh, it, it, it purports to depict a, a factory um, as if uh, extracted from the global market, as if, you know, as if you can have this uh, sort of isolated, uh, you know, uh, uh, factory. It's, it, but you know, it doesn't have to be a film about globalization um, or logistics in any great sense. Why? Why should it? Um, I think. For, for me, I, li- I like the reading about castration. I think that's definitely true. And to have Bardem as this, this you know, very masculine, almost kind of hyper-masculine man uh, defeated uh, by those who were able to out-manipulate him. Um, but in the end, his desire is for this prize or to, to, to present this uh, working factory in every sense of, of working. Um, he, he somehow manages to dialectically manipulate the manipulators, even though some of them are extremely good. So I think the daughter of so, and I think this is important. I just wanted to draw this out because I'm not sure either of you mentioned it particularly, but the the the, the thing about the family, the problem with um, making your your workplace your family. Uh, this is also a question addressed uh, by the very good film Boss of It All, which is Lars von Trier's only comedy, which is also about. 
uh, about a boss, but it's about the disavowal of mastery. Uh, but it's also about what happens when you treat your uh, your your employees as your family or or as your friends. Actually, it's more about treating them as your friends. This is a film about treating your employees as if they're your family. But the problem is, you can't sleep with members of your family <laughs> because it's incest, right? And it, and things go terribly wrong when you do that. So, the the intern uh, turns out to be. Uh, the daughter of a very close friend that that he helped bring up, he doesn't recognise her because she's become a very beautiful and attractive young woman, and he doesn't relate her to the the young girl that he uh, points held on his knee and fed milk to, and so on. Right, so it's a deep shock to him when uh, his wife, who's been keep meaning to tell him something, and she keeps forgetting, uh, which is quite a funny uh, repeated scene. Um, she forgets to tell him that it's the daughter of their very good friends that he just hasn't had to see for a long time and he ends up uh you know in a sexual encounter with her um which is inappropriate not only from the standpoint of the current workplace um and we know how much more restrictive those things have become i mean you can't really flirt with anyone at work anymore whereas lots of people used to meet their spouse at work uh let's be clear so that so the edicts on any kind of behavior outside of your workplace role have become much narrower. Um, but this is even more proximate. So his proximity to this this woman um, is, is even more personal. And it's almost as if he's sleeping with his daughter or his goddaughter. And indeed, he uses these metaphors to describe the interns and the, and the, and the employees as if they are his children because he doesn't have any. I think that was, that was actually mentioned. Um, so I, I think this is you know this character who's who turns out to be extremely manipulative like she wants the the head job as advertiser she she moves into their house she's extremely kind of uh i i don't know how to put it sort of uh canny and machiavellian and uh you know brutal in her sort of uh, revenge but nevertheless she gets what she wants he gets what he wants uh it's all about not letting certain people know um but i think the, the problem with the personal, if you're a personal boss who thinks that your employees are his family in any situation, sooner or later, you're going to meet someone who's a better manipulator than, than you are. Um, and the family is is always this kind of dramatic and dynamic um, space. Um, on the one hand, you could say, well, isn't it better to have a personal relation to a boss? Because like the tyrant, we talked about this before, but the, you know, the human tyrant is a man and a man is weak. You know, whereas the bureaucracy is faceless and acephalic and there isn't anyone in charge. And that's more scary. Like the system is more frightening when it's impersonal. I, I, I think at any rate, I would rather have the, the, the weak human tyrant uh, than the impersonal uh, acephalic bureaucracy. Um, also because, because men are mortal and systems are not potentially. Systems are immortal in their, in their drive. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I don't want to add too much more other than I think at the very final scene, which is very well handled, but, uh, Benjamin described it, um, with the, with the worker who's lost his son and on some level possibly suspects that his son was, uh, was, was, um, paid by the boss to rough up this guy who was, uh, protesting outside of the, the factory and was therefore a nuisance. Um, there is a threat of menace. There's a threat of violence actually in the final scene, in the in the very final second, where the the boss basically, in his kind of egotistical glory, you know, he's got the 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 plaque. He's won this this silly competition. Who cares? But he cares. It's his motivation, you know. And as Benjamin says, the sign is slightly wonky, and he says this to the the handyman who's, who's holding an uh, electric drill. And there's this flash of violence at the end, right? And and again, I think this is like the the uh, the incomplete nature of the solution to the problem of the the family whole. Like there will always be this repressed threat of violence um, that you're never able to contain. And the same is true of labour. You know, the workers are never simply happy. There's the, the workers are always um, potentially rebellious. And they, they will always potentially go on strike. Um, and I think one of the things that maybe might be interesting to talk about is, is what forms of um, resistance are available today. There's a quite interesting piece, obviously, in the te Telegraph, which is obviously a right-wing magazine, 
but it was it was describing how strikes don't work in the same way anymore. Um, that even though Britain is is having strikes left, right, and center, or left, left, and left, as it were, um, uh, among twenty five different industries, you know, we've had strikes, uh, you know, on odd days, bus strikes, train strikes, teacher strikes, lawyer strikes, ambulance driver strikes, uh, university strikes, post office strikes, etc., etc., etc. But they're not really having the same effect as they did, say, for example, of the late seven end of the late 70s or in the 80s with the minor strike which were which went on for a year and Thatcher had to crush them or she didn't have to she chose to this was a horribly political decision um, but these uh, partial strikes in the era of work from home are not having the same effect and I think it would be interesting to discuss um, together what um, contemporary forms of worker resistance might actually look like? What can people actually do to withdraw their labour in a meaningful sense that will genuinely challenge the structure of exploitation? Yeah, very interesting stuff. I do want to point out, he asks the father about the son being sent over. There's a scene where he, you don't hear the dialogue, but before this happens where he approaches the guy while he's working, the guy takes off his headphone, and they have a conversation where you don't hear the words. Mm -hmm. And I take that to be the conversation where he asks the father to have the son and his friends go over later. So the father not only knows about it, he's an accomplice in it. Okay, fair enough. I thought that was just a conversation about the headphones. But yes, okay, so the father, in a sense, has taken this unbelievable hit in the loss of his youngest son then. You you might be right. There could be an ambiguity there. It could be being played. Mm. Yeah, I, I might be wrong to read it that way, but that was how I read it. I read it as both of those things happening in that scene. Yeah, I, uh, I think I think with the headphone is maybe right. a distraction from what was more likely to be going on. Mm-hmm. No, fair enough. Uh, yeah, I think one of the things I've, I'm also noticing, and so many movies we've seen lately have somebody getting into the home. You have the page turner where the page turner gets into the home. You have tar where the aide, the assistant is inside the home. And it's always these people who get into the home who are the big trouble. And in that final scene with the menace, again, they're in the home. That employee is with the, with the drill bit is inside his house. And uh, you know, Parasite's another film where it's all they're in the home. Once the workers get in the home, there's this menace aspect, which I find interesting in part because in ancient Rome, of course, the household slaves were all over the place. Uh, Lots of people were in the home and it it wasn't a problem generally, in part because of the rule that if any slave does anything in the home, all the slaves get killed in that household. Uh, Collective capital punishment. Uh, And I think you're right that the strike is less effective than it used to be. I think a lot of that is to do with the movement of the uh, commanding heights of manufacturing outside of the Western states. So now when there's a strike, while that strike does damage the economy, it does not create the massive supply chain issues that strikes in the 70s in manufacturing sectors would have had. People make the point, well, you know, it's not like everybody was in manufacturing in the 70s either. If you look at the percentage of people in manufacturing, it was never an enormously high percentage. But the important essential things that make the economy work used to be manufactured in Western countries and therefore subject to the Western strike. That's no longer the case. So now when we hear about strikes, they're overwhelmingly professionals striking and professionals in industries that are either being automated or potentially not as important as they used to be uh, to the to the economy or where you know, again it's easier to do them remote or it's easy to get people from outside the country to do them remote there is i think to a very large degree an erosion of the capacity of people to strike and i think the strike really is only effective if uh, the strikers have the sympathy of the armed forces. So when people ask are asked to disperse the strikers, if the strikers say seize highways and block transport, uh, then at that point, the soldiers have to sympathize with the strikers and be unwilling to disperse them. Generally, that's not happening. Usually in the UK, when you get a protest that blocks the tube or blocks a highway, people get angry about it 
And uh, certainly soldiers are not refusing orders to clear highways or to clear rail lines. Uh, and then secondly, you know, the other thing is to get the people who are manufacturing in the places where the commanding heights are, uh, you know, where that's going on, for those people to strike. But those people are not Western workers. They live in other countries with lower living standards, lower expectations. Uh, and those states tend to be authoritarian and more straightforwardly able to crush rebels. And when they're not, you get foreign interventions you know, of the kind that we've seen in many developing countries over the, you know, going back all the way to World War II, really, uh, interventions in developing countries all over the place, whenever there is any kind of kind of left-wing workers movement mm -hmm. poised to establish itself. Yeah. I mean, it was interesting a few years ago when I was studying law and I did my dissertation on the, the idea of public order. Um, and, you know, really what the presupposition of the state is that there is only disorder <laughs> and that order is something achieved by in, 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 an, in a contingent way. But one of the things that the state is um, and the police uh, are, and the army are there to protect is, is the in the UK, at least, or England and Wales, is, is the Queen's peace. But what the Queen's peace is, is access to the highways. It, it's, it's that's what it means. It's very interesting. So 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 Benjamin Benjamin, sorry, I'm talking about you as if you're the German Marxist theorist. Um, <laughs> what Benjamin is saying about blocking the roads and actually, if you get the army, you know, it's the the road blocking thing is actually really very significant from the standpoint of the state because originally it was all about making sure the highways were available for the monarch to travel, um, which is very odd. Um, but this is this is what it is, and I I think what we have now is this kind of you know delivery system, right? So we have lots of people in the grey economy who are cycling around as they did during lockdown, and this massively increased. And uh, in Compact this week, we published a very interesting piece by Alex Park about the delivery economy. Uh, while well, he was looking at DoorDash, which I guess is maybe bigger in America, but you know all of these sorts of delivery companies which have sprung up obviously were massively increased during the um, lockdown, you know, as people were ordering things to their house, whether food or by Amazon, you know, so you had this, uh, you know, serious uh, number of people cycling around, often people who are recent um, migrants or uh, people without official working documentation, people who are trying to claim asylum, people in the grey economy, um, you know, Difficult, if not impossible, to organise, uh, unionise. Let's say union membership in general is down by half as what it was in the seventies. Right, virtually almost nobody is a member of a union. Right, um, and there are attempts to unionise at places like Starbucks and so on. But this has caused a massive argument in the Marxist left about whether service workers are proletarian. Uh, you know, whether they're adding value in the in the way that in a classical Marxist sense. But I think. Um, the piece we, we published by Alex Park was actually saying those companies make a loss. Those delivery companies make a loss. But what they do is they they uh, they contribute to the erosion of local mm -hmm. and independent restaurants, which is what Wall Street are interested in doing, right? So it's this kind of like awful thing. It's this kind of uh, the transfer of wealth, which we know occurred, uh, you know, is always occurring, but a sped up. I think Helen mentioned this recently, you know, beyond belief, right, during the lockdowns. You know, we saw this enclosure, this, you know, yes, again, another form of enclosure, um, not only of our own bodies, which is ongoing, but also of uh, the cities, the city space, you know, to, to eradicate any last vestige of independence or, you know, attempt to, to eliminate small and medium enterprises so that more wealth can transfer to, to multinationals. Um, and to people who are who are already billionaires, right? I mean, mm -hmm. what is wrong with these people? <laughs> I don't I know think, what we do yeah. with them. When we we did the enjoy poverty episode, I think we talked about this. It's like it's all very well to talk about, you know, like capitalism is less to do with a system of exchange, like a market system, than it is to do with a demented, <laughs> unnatural human desire. And um, I think the thing is, it's like. What do we do? You know, it's all very well having this critique of, say, the good boss, quote unquote, on the Monday, when actually what we have is something far, far worse, where, yeah, how do you strike when you're not even part of a, of a, of a you don't even have a hand in the generation of, of 
value or, you know, you you aren't even on the first rung of the employment ladder. And I think, you know, we've talked about this loads, but the, the girl boss is a real example of how having a job at all is an elite sort of um, notion these days and how you have the likes of, you know, the Kardashians all having their businesses and every Hollywood actress having their own production company. It's like being a worker in a way is, is, um, is even more, you know, it, it is prestigious in some ways, because, precisely because the nature of um, capitalism today is, is much more um, to do with um, destruction than perhaps ever before. And um, we're really seeing, and it's obviously in capitalism, it's, it's been here since the beginning, but like that, that that which generates value is that which destroys to allow it to sustain itself. So it's not quite so simple as like, oh, socialism is next. You know, when we, you know, we have this, it, it, we're just seeing how, you know, okay, the logic of capitalism, there's all these issues, you don't pay workers enough, they don't have enough money, so they can't buy the products. But, you know, it actually has become something much more. And, you know, and I think the uh, the owl of Minerva flies at dusk, and obviously Marx was a Hegelian, you, 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 we don't quite know until it's happening, um, you know, where, where things are going to go. But this is, you know, I was thinking a few years ago when the Pepsi ad came out, that absolutely ridiculous Pepsi ad, which was like the, the protest ad. And it can offend people so much. Like it, it went, it went to show how the utilitarian explanation of the functioning of a corporation. So, for instance, oh, we're selling ads to make people want to buy the product more. At this point, it's not quite so simple as that because you you do a an ad that is less to do with um, I'm going to get people to buy a product and more to do with. Uh, a puff piece as to which side of the cultural war a corporation is on, because they're actually making, you know, the bottom line isn't so much to do with products sold, more to do with um, domineering and monopolizing a market, which is uh, the the wheels are greased through identifying with a certain, you know, quote unquote, emancipatory logic. Um and also, you know, in things like commodi- commodities and, you know, financialization, you know, they, they, they make more money on Wall Street than they do in selling cans of Coke. So it's, but, but also, you know, things like students, is there, obviously people talk about things like debt, um, refusing to pay debt as a form of strike, you know, um, but are there, what, what can you do as a student where you are, you are actually a worker, you are generating value as a student? in terms of the prestige of the institutions, which still in Britain are one of the industries that exist precisely because of the historic sort of prestige of British institutions. And you have loads of people from abroad coming in. Um, but also, you know, you are you are generating value because of your the debt you're getting into. So how is there anything that, that people can do in terms of that? I don't know. Well, I think one of the things that is is happening is that the big concern going forward is that the door is going to shut on rebellion because they're going to automate the army. And they've been trying to automate the army for a long time. And it's something that is always a difficult thing to get done. And they're always thinking they're further along with it than they are. You know, a quintessential example being Donald Rumsfeld imagining he didn't need so many infantry on the ground in Iraq and discovering, oh, no, I can't do it all with drones and planes yet. I still need people on the ground. Uh, that was true 20 years ago, and it's probably still true. But in another 20 years or 40 years, will they still need people on the ground? And this question of do you have to order people to clear the streets or clear the royals? Or uh, can you tell machines to do it? Because machines will do it no matter what. They don't care. And I think this is the, the possibility of revolution is uh, shrinking as the military is more and more heavily automated. At this point, yeah, the, the pancreas of, of capitalism is no longer located in Western countries, but many of the powerful arteries still are insofar as for the capitalist system to function, a lot of the purchasing, the consumer purchasing still has to get done in Western states. And the leverage that the worker now has is as a consumer rather than a manufacturer. And so, 
uh, the blocking of consumption by blocking the roads and blocking the delivery of things, blocking the railways, stopping up the airports. Those are things people can still do, but only insofar as they accommodate and include the armed services and people in the armed services in those protest actions. And if they don't, then uh, they're just ultimately, you know, if, if they actually get somewhere, they will be put down with force. I can't I mean, really... Yeah, come. I was going to say, you know, it's obviously true, you know, America is the prime example of um, state violence being necessary to sustain exploitation. So, you know, the violence of the police, you know, you have the factor of the... Of, of citizens being armed, but the degree of inequality and exploitation is um, like the greater that exists, the more violence you need to repress it. But but yeah, so th but th but in a way that requires a police force that um, is potentially you know the, the people working for the police um, being less ideologically aligned with the rest of the population because of course if you have this kind of but but this is this is you know obviously Pasolini made this point in terms of 68 that you know th these are workers too um, and I do know that like the military has been experiencing just the same level of like destruction of living standards as, as everybody else there's a big thing at the moment in sort of the military community about um in the UK about um accommodation because obviously you get posted places and you get housed and the level of the accommodation is just getting so bad that people are living with like horrible you know molded out houses and so the same of course the same on a on a on a on a human level the same forces apply to everybody but in places like America you know it it is really you have this tragic conundrum of an extremely violent police force obviously um, heightened by the fact that the the, the, the citizenry is, is armed, but also because of the very exploitative, very unequal nature of America. Um, and how do you get people to recognise the emancipatory potential in recognising the police worker as a divided subject as well? Yeah. In, in the States, we pretend that we want you know, to get rid of this idea that you know, it, of the police having an us versus them mentality. We go, oh, it's such a problem. The police have this us versus them mentality. That's precisely the mentality that the police and the military need to have when called out to put away protesters and strikers. So, of course, that is the attitude that needs to be manufactured. And insofar as the left can then be made to resent the police and resent the military because it has this attitude and it does these things that pushes left-wing movements away from the kind of messaging which could potentially break down the attitude of the police or the attitude of the military. Ultimately, it's, it's not going to be a question of, you know, can you reform the police into being pro-left-wing? It's, it's going to be a question of can you frame a left-wing movement in such a way that you can get police and military people interested in it? Uh, I think privatizing the police uh, and, and getting rid of that labor union, that, that set of labor unions is not the picnic that a lot of people imagine it might be. I'm hearing people making arguments that, you know, what's really needed with the police is something like a Teach for America program, but for cops where you take Ivy League kids and you stick them in the inner cities as, as police officers and gradually by doing that, you uh, ideologically purge the police force. I don't think that's going to work. I think if you – what history shows is that if you take soldiers, you take police officers or other people with military training and you take their job away – uh, and you put them out onto the street with a gun and military training and nothing to do with that training, they tend to become uh, a nuisance, a social nuisance, and to do uh, very bad things with that training and with yeah. those weapons. There's a statistic about, um, you know, when there's a, a conscript army um, and, you know, so there's universal conscription, um, the percentage of people in the war who aren't volunteers, <laughs> who are able to actually deliberately shoot on target is extremely low. I don't know, you know, again, I always say this in statistics that I vaguely remember once being said, but something like 5% of people will actually shoot on target at an enemy. So the point being is that when you have a professional army, the people who um, 
choose to be soldiers, professional soldiers and volunteer for that kind of life, it's a certain type of, potentially a certain type of person who's capable of doing that. So <laughs> you want to keep them. I don't know. But it is just, it is just you know, that, that I think that there is um, a lack of ability to, you know, that maybe is to say that there, there's no humanity in this kind of person. Well, obviously not. Humans are humans. If you're a speaking subject, you're a human with, you know, there's an emancipatory kernel within you and everything. But it is just that there is a there there are different types of of people, and I think that um, it is just interesting that in the in those types of situations, you know, people aren't able to to go there. But of course, I don't know. You know, if you're if you're if you're materially forced into being a police officer with no other options, maybe you can. I don't know. Maybe the material conditions would allow you to be able to shoot. States require military force, military capability, that is an ultimate, final and necessary component of a state. So if you have a left-wing movement that wants to win power, to capture the state, to possess the state, that movement needs to be compatible with having military forces. And even if you say win an election and you win civilian power, if you have a military which is hostile to you, that military will coup you out if they're sufficiently hostile. So there's no way around it. Ultimately, to have power in a state system, you have to have people who are willing to serve in the military, be willing to do the things that you tell them to do. They're one of the constituencies you cannot do without. And one of the idealistic and utopian aspects of the contemporary left is this idea that you can do without these people. Mm. That you can just through a kind of cultural discourse move past yeah. them or get beyond them or consign them to a dustbin of history and well, not have to deal with it. Ideologically fix them by making them all middle class and, and left wing and have PMC ideas. Um, I think, you know, when Thatcher, before Thatcher used the police to, you know, break the miners' strike, she upped their pay and conditions because she knew very well she, what she was doing. Um, and I think this is... And the fact that she had to do that, the fact that that was, you know, it's a concern. You have to up their pay and conditions because you can't be sure they'll do what you want. Right. The right knows that they can't be sure that the police and military will follow the orders when the time comes. It's the left that assumes that they will because the left's written them off. Yeah. And, and you know, as we can see from the, the, the sort of defund the police, where, what that actually sort of means in practice is... Poorer areas becoming much more dangerous. The black homicide rate has gone up since uh, George Floyd and those summers of, of protests. Um, you know, and then we're seeing a move towards private security, which is what they have in South America. I mean, this is you know rich people pay paying for private security. Like this is the Brazilification of of the United States. You know, we had a we had a great piece by Emma Freire about this recently. Um, in, in compact, but I think I think you know it's it, it's very interesting when you look at countries like Egypt, right? When the army when they had the Arab Spring and the army uh, switches sides, and it's usually the army will switch before the police, right? Because the police are more fundamentally tied to the state. The army are often conscripts who are, you know, much more normal people, if you like, like they're much more still in touch with their family and their class, uh, whereas the police are a bit, you know, perhaps more ideologically. Uh, attuned to, you know, in, in some cases, anyway. Um, and there's a very interesting slogan in the Arab Spring where the revolutionaries of the protest were talking about when fear changes sides. So it's all mm -hmm. about who has the ability to manipulate or use fear. Um, and, you know, once the, the, the state becomes afraid of the protesters, not least because the army has switched sides and the protesters are no longer afraid of the army, then fear has changed sides. And I thought this was a very interesting and insightful slogan, like a way of thinking about state power. Yeah, that it's the necessary step. And when, when people talk about this stuff, there's a reluctance to think through what are the actual necessary steps to get where someone is proposing to go. If you actually want to hold state power, at some point, you have to get these people with the guns to agree to do what you're saying instead of what they're currently being told to do. There's got to be a transition there. And if you don't have a theory of how the person with the gun is persuaded, then you don't have a strategy for 
handling this at the final stage. You can get all the way there with everybody in the street and the whole general strike and everything that you know people think of as as impossible currently. All of these things people think of as impossible or unlikely to happen. You can get all those things done. And then when it comes to it, if you don't have the army, you can still lose. And this is the Franco problem. You know, this is a Spanish film. And I think when Nina was talking about how underneath every Spanish uh, uh, middle class person, there's someone who wants to torture somebody. <laughs> it's this idea that underneath every Spanish middle class person or bourgeois person, there's generally Simo Francisco Franco. That's what's lurking. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I have a lot of comments they about got that, yeah. all of those revolutionaries to go out in Spain in the 30s. And what happened? The military sided with Generalissimo Francisco Franco. Yeah. yeah. And if they side with Francisco Franco, you're going to lose. But, you know, I think that on many levels, it is more reasonable that the army would side with the people than the police would. I mean, obviously, the army is often brought in to um, replace workers in the strike. So if a strike's happening and sort of some supply chains down, then the police, then the army will replace it. So they do have this sort of uh, ability to be this sort of second stop gap and they could, they could also break the supply chain as well. But, you know, and this is, you know, the, the police is obviously um, instigating law and order in terms of capitalism on its own people. And the army is more like externally facing. So ideologically, you know, this is explained in various different ways to make it palatable to to people in the army. But there is this sort of actually um, more, less of a kind of, obviously there there are cases and this happened in the troubles where the police, the army was brought in to um, instigate uh, a certain force on its own population um in that's in terms of the uk but i do think there is greater potential that that the army people in the army would um side with a kind of a left-wing movement but um yeah it's risky fundamentally risky for the state to involve the army whenever the state involves the army in its internal affairs it's really backed up against a wall and it's in deep trouble yeah. Yeah. I can't um, quite see environmental movements convincing the army to join them, however, <laughs> at this point. By the way. Not, the, not movements of that type. No. But there is, I think, still the possibility of people conceptualizing movements in ways that are more inclusive toward the army. Uh, and it, But it's something people would have to argue for and talk about. And what's happening is that everyone is so def- deferential to this narrative that these people, you can't engage with these people who have the guns, that Mm -hmm. guns are evil and people who have guns and military Mm -hmm. training are bad people. This idea has made it impossible for the left to even imagine movements that can actually win. But But it's interesting. So in the army as well, so by the way, which has become extremely woke, um, one of my best friends is an army wife and her husband is like a, a like a colonel in the army and like the stuff that is tr- but of course this doesn't really wash and this is by the way in terms of your um your point about the 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 sort of um what do you call it deleting of the army's existence and replacing it with robots you know this is a way to sort of like render something null and void by this sort of infiltration of like relativistic um silly kind of not not tied to the reality of what they're doing, you know, ideology. Um, but the the thing is, in terms of like a socialist sort of mindset, the military itself is, and I grew up, my, my parents are both in the military, so it's a world I know very well. <laughs> but like, um, this was something that I was very shocked about when I entered the arts, because I'd been, I'd grown up in this world where the values were very much Okay. Yes, there is this ideological supplement in terms of the violence that the that underpins the entire army, and that the army is a force that goes to all these other places to fight on behalf of the in interests, imperial or otherwise, of a given state. Um, but within the army itself, it's the the ideology is very much to do with self sacrifice, um, acting on behalf of your sort of fraternity, um, shit pay. You know? <laughs> Um, as in, you know, and it's it's very socialistic. You know, it's 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 you're paid by the government, at a controlled rate. You know, it's actually very, you know, so it has this sort of socialistic kind of dimension within the the structure of the army, even though you know the way it operates in terms of on behalf of capitalism is not you know socialistic. But the um, 
or is not socialistic in capitalist un, in capitalist countries. But I was really shocked having sort of felt like having had this sort of upbringing in this one direction and maybe thinking, oh, you know, the arts is more uh, open and less conservative and more, you know, less repressive and more, you know, socialistic and fair. Absolute bollocks, much more rapaciously capitalistic, which means actually violent, <laughs> competitive, you know, um, not at all fraternal, not at all to do with the collective good. And as I say, like that, that aspect of the army, which is highly socialistic, is within the structure of it itself, but what that structure is then um, required to, to do. And obviously it's, it's part of what makes something efficient is that it's not, it's protected from capitalism because the capitalist dimension of it, like the woke, the wokeism entering the um, the military edifice is what erodes it, you know. So that which makes it uh, unfortunately efficient in terms of executing the demands of capitalism is that which is beyond capitalism in its structure. So of course, like what we're talking about is creating a socialist structure for everybody that does not abide by these uh, capitalist, and you know, by everyone we mean everyone, you know, um, and. Not, you know, so the point as well is you can have these pockets of of non-capitalism to act on behalf of capitalism, but obviously we want, you know, everything to not be capitalistic. Anyway. <laughs> but I think, you know, like Benjamin mentioning the whole sort of attempt to um, automate the army, which obviously on the face of it seems crazy, um, but it's part of a broader shift, right? Obviously towards a kind of, you know, automation, Roboticization, virtualization, electrification, internetification—you know—and well, we we did Ted Kaczynski a while, a while ago, but I, you know, I I do honestly wonder it's whether there will be a kind of neo Luddite movement in a certain sense because the eradication, not only the enclosures we talked about, but the eradication of people's jobs, values, meaning on the basis that you know, other things can do it for them, whether it's at this point a university lecturer <laughs> or, a, or a, I don't know, uh, a drone replacing an army officer or a, or a robot replacing a factory worker. Um, at, you know, at a certain point, is there not going to be a kind of massive pushback or a very... Well, it would need to be pretty quick because yeah. this stuff... It's true. Is, it gets moving and they're plowing tons of money into AI yeah. and into the robot dogs now, the, the dogs that can chase people down, the uh, killer robots that uh, that police force, I think, in one of the Californian cities was, yeah. was going to buy these uh, automated killer robot cops. Uh, this sick. stuff is pretty close mm. at this point to being in the picture. The drones are part of it. They are already something that people could never have conceived of in the Cold War, you know, when everything had to have a pilot, had to have a human, and except for, you know, big, inter dumb intercontinental ballistic missiles. You know, that was the beginning. And now it's scaled all the way down to the itty bitty drones. And yeah. now you've got stuff that can walk or run on treads by itself. Uh, you know, right now they will, you know, they'll have human beings push the triggers for them, but they don't have to do that. That's just a precautionary measure. Sure. And I think when we looked at severance, you know, I think the, the separation between what someone in some, one country does and the effect, you know, it might be hidden even to the people doing it. I mean, that's one of the premises of the jobs is that this mysterious uh, function, you know, people don't even know what their job, you know, the, the, the potential harm yeah. or cost and it always gets pitched at people like, oh, you know, it's AI taking over the planet. Mm. What it would be is it would be AI working on behalf of capitalism, capitalism and AI becoming so thoroughly intermeshed that they are indistinguishable from each other. The interests of, of the capitalist and the interests of the machines are indistinguishable from one another. And you can't tell where one ends and the other begins. Anyway, we're at an hour. So we're going to go over and do the B side now on that haunting note. So thank you guys so much for listening and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Bye.